Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, this is Doug Farrar, editor of Touchdown Wire on the USA Today Sports Media Group. And today we have Old Home Week. This is bringing the band back together. Uh, for those who know my history, you may know about my time with Football Outsiders, but uh, Aaron Schatz, the uh, major domo of FO, was the guy who kind of got me my start way back when, hashtag old. And uh, Mike Tanier, Tanya, Tanya, is it, is it like Carmine, a piece, and Vinny Apice with you, or Kelsey and Kelsey? Is it Tanier? Correct, and it's Kelsey. But yes, it's, it's exactly like Carmine, a piece, a passe. Ray Davies Davis. It's exactly like that. I didn't know Mike, that one. Mike changes the pronunciation of his name based on how he feels that morning. <laughs> oh, okay. I thought it was like an even oddier thing. <laughs> and you thought Aaron Rodgers was a prima donna. I changed my pronunciation and forced everyone to change with me. Okay. No more Aaron Rodgers jokes for you because now you're just more obnoxious. Okay. <laughs> so the reason I wanted to do this, besides catching up with you guys, is we want to talk about this thing. Football Outsiders Almanac, 2021. Aaron, is this the 18th? Uh, this is the 17th book. The oh, site God. is about to celebrate its 18th birthday. So the first year we did that book called Pro Football Forecast with the Sean Lehman and Todd Grenier. So this is the 17th book that we've done just on our own four editions of Pro Football Prospectus, and then 13 Football Outsiders Almanacs. So hashtag old. Hashtag old. I remember when, well, I discovered you in, I think, 2004, because I was, I, I know I've told you this, growing up with Bill James Abstracts, and I loved, Moneyball kind of changed my life when I read that. I, I, mm. We all probably say that. And then it was like, I, I don't even remember how I discovered football. I was like, oh, my God, it's Moneyball for football. It's Bill James for football. I was like, yee. So I was like writing in your message board and running Seahawks.net. And then, Aaron, you reached out to me in the Seahawks Super Bowl year, which, of course, that game went as everyone planned. And, uh, yeah, so I, I, I think 2006 was your draft year was Bill Barnwell and me. Yeah. Or was it? Yeah. That worked out pretty well. It's fun but, going back to some of those almanacs and seeing the names. I mean, oh. some of them are folks who didn't go on to careers in football, and it's just memories of, hey, remember Ned Macy when he wrote for us and Tim oh, Gerheim? Yeah. Uh, and then some of it is people who've gone on to big careers, like Bill Barnwell and you and Ryan Wilson, who's at CBS, and yep. Michael David Smith, who's with Pro Football Talk, and, and uh, uh, all it, these other folks. And Doug, remember that that kid who followed around, us around New Orleans, uh, asking us to get Froyo all the time. Remember oh, that yeah. guy? Yeah, he's working for the Rams now. <laughs> whatever, whatever happened to him? Yeah, yeah the, the milk guy. The milk guy. It, it, it is for, funny because and even he probably has like five pronunciations of his last name. So there you go. This being old home week, we really should have Andy Benoit with us and be eating Froyo. Yes. Uh, but I also I should point out. Um, it's funny because when Andy Benoit, when the, the announcement sort of went out this weekend that he'd been hired by the Rams, I saw people say, well, he used to work for Football Outsiders. He must be an analytics guy. 
I just will point out, and Andy will point this out too. Andy is a film guy. Oh yeah. He was our film guy. He wrote for us and he used our stats and his pieces, but he's right. not doing stats analytics no. for the Rams. Right. He's a film study guy. Right. So Aaron, let's go back to what, 2000. Well, first of all, I want you to tell me the Ron Borges story. Because I love, I love that football outsiders were created entirely out of spite. That's just brilliant. Well, yeah. I mean, there were other reasons. Like, I loved football and I loved analytics. And nobody was doing analytics for football at the time. Okay, and, yeah, and, yeah, know, yeah. The couple people that were trying, it, it wasn't very good. Uh, but the biggest thing is, yeah, so 2002, I'm a Patriots fan. And, of course, we'd won the Super Bowl in 2001. In 2002, the Patriots go 9-7 and seven and they miss the playoffs on tiebreaker. Not that bad, let's, you know, to be honest. Uh, but Ron Borges in the Boston Globe writes, the reason the Patriots missed the playoffs was because they couldn't establish the run. And this didn't make sense to me because Ron Borges, the team that he thought was going to win it all that year was Oakland, and Oakland's running back was right. Charlie Garner. <laughs> and Charlie Garner was a pass catcher for the most part, not as much of a runner. So I said, well, that's weird. Like, how can you be backing Oakland. Now, of course, we know now it's because that's where Ron Borges' sources were. But at the time, I said, okay, well, I'm going to be like Bill James. When Bill James wanted to know how catchers and pitchers affected stolen bases, he went back and he looked in the box scores. He counted box scores by hand and figured out just how many stolen bases different catchers allowed, different pitchers allowed. I'm going to do the same thing. I'm going to count the box scores by hand and figure out if teams that run the ball early really do win more games. And of course, you know, what we all know now that analytics has spread a little bit in the football world is that that's not how it works, that it's not running for the sake of running that wins games, that for the most part, passing wins games and you run in the fourth quarter in order to salt away the clock. And that's what I discovered when I was doing research then. And that's how I wrote my first article about establishing the run. And we launched Football Outsiders from there. And it, it really it can't be overstated how rudimentary it was. I, if I remember correctly, you were going, I think, was NFL Jesus even around back then? Were you going to like ESPN.com box score and scraping it into Excel? I was copying or scrap or anything like that. I was copy. I don't even know how to data scrape. I was copy pasting in Excel. That's correct. <laughs> That's how I built. And uh, th these two guys who did analytics, uh, tried to do analytics a little bit before us, Sean Lehman and Todd Grenier, they wrote that they had a database of every play in the NFL season, but none of the stats that they used actually seemed to use that play-by-play -play database. So I said, okay, like I'm going to make a play-by-play -play database and actually do analysis that goes to the play-by-play -play level. So you don't think about it now that there's like the NFL fast R package and anybody who understands the R programming language has access to play-by-play -play in the NFL that goes back to 1999 that's absolutely free. But back then, there was no such thing as a play-by-play -play database for the NFL. I basically created it from scratch, starting with the 2002 season, and then we gradually got some data from places, so we were able to go backwards as we went forwards, and now we have everything back to 1983. So we have 37 seasons of play-by-play -play. is it does it start to get reductive getting whole seasons together with you know getting i guess box scores are easier but tape is hard well that's what gets hard about the old days and there's a guy named jeremy snyder and half ha, uh shout out to him because he has been absolutely phenomenal in collecting tapes when there are not game books existent for games and we've had a couple of places where we've had to sort of guess 
because the only there's no tape for a game and the only game book has like a smudged mimeo for half of the first quarter and we have to kind of guess as to what the plays were but for the most part we've been able to get back i believe he's missing like one and a half games in 1982 and then we're going to be able to have 1982 and he's close to having 1981 obviously the further back we get the harder it is to find the game books which means we have to find tape and the harder it is to find the tape, because let's be honest, the teams that were not good back then and don't have really big fan bases, nobody was collecting a lot of tape from the early 80s Detroit Lions. <laughs> well, there's also, I mean, like, I know Steve Sable hated the Astrodome. So you try finding a full game of the Houston Oilers in, like, like <laughs> Yeah, I, I mean no disrespect to the NFL films, but they have not been very good about uh, offering us access to their film library. I'm guessing that they have every game going back into the 70s on film, but right. we haven't been able to get them to give, a, give us access. So far, that hasn't been a problem. We'll see what happens when we get into 1980 and 1979. I love doing these old years. I mean... Yeah. You know, I realized that the the money to make in do writing about football analytics is in writing about the current season and uh, connections to fantasy and connection to the betting world. And but I love doing the old historical stuff. Yeah. It's so much fun to see like Dan Fouts or when we got <laughs> to 1984 and we got to do Dan Marino. Yeah. And now our best quarterback seasons ever include Dan Marino's 1984, which we all know is one of the best quarterback seasons ever. And now we can use the same stats that we use to grade Brady and Mahomes. We can use to grade Dan Marino's best seasons. Yeah. Kind of the head explode moment for me with FO when I first read it was adjusting for opponent. It's like, yes, thank you, God. Thank you. Sweet baby Jesus. Somebody figured this out because baseball it's, it's different basketball station to station sports are one thing. And, you know, preaching there to preaching to the preacher here, um, the interdependent sport, which this is more than any other, really, is right. you know, to adjust for opponent. How did you come up with that? What, what was also, the, what was the moment, like the galvanic moment where you said, "I have to do this"? Because of the schedule being shorter, there's more difference between, like in baseball, you play every other team at least six times, I think, in your league, right? And right. since interleague play was introduced, there's a little bit more difference in schedule from team to team. But in football, there was a lot of difference in schedule from team to team. And I honestly cannot tell you what was the eureka moment where I realized I had to do it. I just kind of always realized I had to do it. Like I, the eureka, I can tell you the eureka moment as far as comparing to average, but I always was going to adjust for opponent. That was just always going to be part of it. Yeah, the zero baseline. But that was, I mean, I don't think I would have taken FO as seriously without that, without the adjustment for opponent. It's a big part of what we do, especially in season, because for the most part, schedules will even out over 16 games, but over eight or nine, like mm -hmm. there are some real discrepancies in the schedules and you really right. want to know, you know, the differences between teams, you know, it's tough early in the season because you want to adjust for schedule, but you don't know how good teams are. Like you don't know whether a team is going to be the team that falls apart that year, right? Adjusting right. for schedule for Dallas last year, you know, the 20, uh, 2020 Cowboys were very different from the 2019 Cowboys, but um, especially once you get into having seven or eight games, there's still big differences in schedule, but there's enough data that you can do adjustments for schedule. And it's really important to do. Did you do a special adjustment for Mike Nolan? the same adjustment for for the, every other bad defense gets yeah. i think uh, yeah. all, the, all, the, all the coaches on dallas staff named mike we have to do special adjustments for them uh speaking of mike mike how did you get involved with fo 
I was going to say adjusting for Mike Nolan means actually turning your Zoom camera and microphone on, which I don't think a lot of Cowboys did last year. But uh, so it was very similar to you. It was very similar to you. I was in the woods looking for somebody who was doing a Bill James type of thing. And a friend of mine in a Stratomatic Baseball League uh, recommended Aaron. And I, and I reached out to him. I'd been doing some anonymous fantasy type writing for different sites along the way. And Aaron gave me an opportunity to do more. And you talk about the, the opponent adjustment as like the, the head explode moment. Uh, for me, it was two things. And one of them was the fact that uh, DVOA breaks down for, uh, you know, by offense, defense, run defense, pass defense, special teams. Uh, it already had, I don't think it was behind the firewall back then, but I think you could already look up third down, second down. And like, what a tremendous tool this is because it, it goes across all these things and you can break teams down like that. Oh, and situation, situation. As Aaron likes to explain it, the three-yard run on third and four, and the three-yard run on third and one, it's more important. It's better. Right. It means more, yeah. Right, all of those things, which was so important to the things I wanted to do at that point. And the other thing was replacement value and average. Uh, he talks about, Aaron talked about the layman books in the past, and it would take like Ladanian Tomlinson and give him like a negative six million rating or whatever because he came as below average because the Chargers were running him you know, 45 times a game or whatever. And I would, I looked at DVOA and I believe it wasn't called DER at the time. It was called something else. And, uh, but the idea that, Oh, uh, as a rate stat, because he's being used so much, Ladinian Thomason comes out as below average, but above replacement level, he's this valuable player because he's soaking up all these, uh, all these carries and opportunities and situations. And when I saw there was that level of, of detail on these statistics and that they could be used in all these different ways, that's when I had to reach out. That's when I was eager to become part of things. Yeah. Well, uh, uh, there's DVOA, which is the it's opponent adjusted situation dependent per play. DYAR, which should obviously be called YAR, every year the Tampa Bay Buccaneers from the Super Bowl, yeah. uh, which is and, and uh, DYAR, Aaron, is that sort of the, it's the collective? Yeah, that's the total stat, whereas DVOA is the rate stat. Right. So DYAR is for players, skill players. And it measures like their value translated into yards above replacement level rather than average. To point out, like Mike said, if you're an average player, but you get a lot of carries or a lot of passes, you're still more valuable because you're taking time away from a bench player who would right. not be as good. So you guys, I mean, I guess I could say us guys, you are on the vanguard of advanced statistical analysis for football. The field, I mean, it's, it's PFF, SAS, Next Gen. Everyone's doing this scrap, whatever. How has that changed what it is that you do and what still sets football outsiders apart? And I, I, I want to, Aaron, you told me years ago, uh, dependent of, of nothing in particular, I can find 100 data guys when I can't find are writers. And I, to me, that's what sets football outsiders apart. But how is the, just the avalanche of different metric sites changed how it is you operate and what still sets FO apart? I mean, it's definitely harder. It, it was a lot easier when I was the only person doing this. Um, uh, I would say that number one, I think you're right, absolutely. I mean, I pride myself on the quality of writers that I hire for Football Outsiders, Mike being a great example. I think that our stuff reads really well and I think it reads really well for people who may not be stat obsessed. Mm -hmm. I mean, as I pointed out, so I, I so pointed important. out like if, if 
nobody wants to read a book that's just tables of numbers. Like we have to put <laughs> words next to them. And a lot of times people are like, well, do you adjust for this? Do you adjust for this? And I'm like, well, those things are subjective. So what we do is we write about them. <laughs> and in the writing, we'll say, well, you do have to consider, you know, COVID <laughs> or <laughs> something like that. So I do still think that what sets football outsiders apart the most is the quality of the writing. Uh, I still think that DVOA is the best overall metric for measuring teams. I also think as far as how it's changed, how I do business, I mean, there's no question that like trying to manage marketing and social media now is like a, much more important than it was 10 years ago when there was no social media and I was just emailing people about things. And, um, or I guess 10 years ago, Twitter existed, but it was really in its infancy. Right. So I did. No well, the Washington Post sent me, I, I didn't send me, but one of the combines, I, I think it was 2009, and I was doing stuff on Twitter for the Washington Post kind of freelancing. And it was like, oh my God, updates on Twitter. And like, yeah. <laughs> I got 20,000 followers off of that because no one else was doing it. It was crazy. It, it, um, there's no doubt that there's a lot more pressure to publicize what we do now, yeah. that there is competition. But it's also, first of all, like, I think there's a lot of respect, mutual respect that we have for each other in the analytics world. I love what they do with next gen stats. Uh, I was critical of pro football focus in the early years, but in the last three or four years, they've hired some really good data scientists mm -hmm. to actually take all that scouting stats that they do and turn it into real analysis. And I think it's really improved what they do. And so, you know, I have plenty of great things to say about Kevin Cole and Eric Eager um, I think there's a lot of mutual respect in the analytics world, and we're very lucky that we cover the most popular sport in the United States. Mm. So there's actually kind of plenty of room for all of us, and yeah. I am very lucky to get to do this for a living. Pay the bills. Well, let's get into the 2021 season. I want to start with the projections. Uh, now, this is you know, the postseason odds of making the playoffs, reaching the Super Bowl, winning the Super Bowl, and then your DVOA projections and the um, – the average opponent, which now how does your app, cause it's not just, Oh, you know, team X went seven to nine. So that's you, know, you, how do you, is it DVOA from last year that you push into this year or how does that work? It's based on their average projected DVOA for next year. Oh, okay. So for example, playing the Patriots, we expect the Patriots to be better. So your schedule is harder than if we only used last year's records. Playing the Saints, we expect the Saints to be not as good. We expect the 49ers to be better, and so on and so forth. So the tops, I don't want to spoil this, but I will say that there's a certain team in Florida that uh, could very well run it back. You can spoil it. It's fine. I mean, uh, we've, we've talked a lot on various podcasts and in our press about our projections. And yeah, Tampa Bay is our – Tampa Bay actually has the number one projected DVOA and the number 30 schedule. Wow. Oh, that's nice. Well, you know what? They, they made sure that they went and got Sam Darnold. The Panthers went out and got Sam Darnold for Tom Brady. <laughs> so it would be, so that the, they could import the AFC East for him to make things a little easier. Yeah. Uh, Baltimore, KC, Buffalo, New England. No real surprises there. You guys are always higher on Seattle than I am. Uh, San Francisco. We're going to talk about the, the adjusted games lost bounce back, but obviously uh, some love there. Now, the Green Bay projection. Is it like 60% Aaron comes back, 40% not? How did you do that? We did the Green Bay projection is 100% Rodgers. Okay. 
The huge you got them at nine points. Yeah, nine point six games. Uh, pretty good. I mean, six point three. Yeah. So you're you not. Know, yeah. A few teams where we had to make decisions on the Houston one is no Deshaun Watson at all. Right. But the Green Bay one is all Rogers. New Orleans is split, and Denver is split. Man, you guys, you guys must think of the world of Dennis Allen. That's all I can say. I want to, I want to, I'm going to, Aaron, uh, you want to tell him how the split worked out in Denver? Cause I find this fascinating. Oh, well, we ended up splitting it 50, 50, but I mean, the difference between Bridgewater and, and Locke is, did I say a, like a win and a half? Something like that. Something like yes. that. Yeah. So they had to factor in several games of a bad quarterback. who's going to get opportunities on purpose uh, because that's probably what's going to happen. Whereas the, what do you call it? The okay quarterback, the, the, the professional quarterback. The very uh, average quarterback, but yeah, you know well, that's a yeah. you put that defense with an average quarterback and those receivers, and I mean we see them as a playoff contender. Welcome to 2015 all over again. Well, this kind of pins my Denver question because I have team questions for all the chapters. Is it? I mean, in, in your experience for both of you guys, the is it better to have a low ceiling quarterback or a lower or lower floor quarterback with atomic upside that he may or may not ever reach? <laughs> Depends on your defense, right? It depends on what your yeah. model is, right? At that point, but like the logic in Denver, which has been for years, find the custodial quarterback. There's merit to that, except look what the path that led the Broncos down. Like, oh, Case Keenum, oh, Joe Flacco, oh, this when they probably should have been okay. Paxton Lynch, they probably figured out pretty early on that this guy didn't have yeah. the the uh, the stuff. They they should have been addressing that. So. If you find, and I think Washington's an example of that, although Fitz is weird. If you find yourself where it's like, oh my goodness, this defense could win all these games by themselves. Maybe we ride a caretaker for a year. I think there's logic to that. But Aaron, back me up on this. If you're if you're out there and you're in in the search of a quarterback, you want you want that high high seal. Yeah, I agree. Part of the problem is because of defense, and this is one of our like most important precepts. Because offense is easier to predict than defense. It's hard to count on having a world-beating defense that can win all those games by itself. Like, we think that Denver and Washington have really good defenses this year, but it's a lot easier to be sure that Kansas City has a top offense than it is to be sure that Denver and Washington have top defenses. So it's hard to go into a year knowing you're going to have a top defense and having just an average quarterback. You want to have that upside. That's why I think the Darnold trade – like as bad as he's been, like at least they're kind of taking a shot that maybe there's some upside there. Well, we don't um, really know what he is. In, yeah, in we, Gase, we don't. Know. Well, we 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 have a good. I mean, we have a good idea because the fact is, Darnold with Gase, people keep comparing it to Tannehill, but Tannehill with Gase was a lot better than Tannehill was a lot better. Yeah. Um, but as far as Denver goes, I think I don't think Locke has a lot of upside anymore. So I think it makes more sense to go with Bridgewater and have yeah. the like, the the averageness. Yeah. I haven't gone with say Justin. Fields I think what would have made sense size. was going with Justin Field. Well, we're gonna, yeah, Fields. we're going to get into that. Um, <laughs> yeah, and Fitzpatrick is not a caretaker; he's a YOLO guy. Um, right. So with defense projection, then we'll get to the teams. It because it, it I assume the bounce is mu- the variance is much more stark year to year on defense than it is on offense. Yeah, and the way that that comes out is because our projections represent the 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 average of a range of possibilities. What you end up with is that the defensive projections are much more clustered around zero and average than the offensive projections are. The offensive projections range from like minus 18% to plus 18% 
whereas the defensive projections go from like minus eight to plus eight. Hmm. So there's just a lot more because it's not that defenses won't be really good or really bad. It's that every team has a wider range of possibility on defenses. So your averages end up closer to average. Yeah. Final projections question. Um, well, you would expect that the Houston Texans would have the lowest projection. They don't. <laughs> J-E-T-S, Jets, Jets, Jets. It's obvious now that you hate the Jets. Explain yourself. <laughs> well, I think some of what's going on in Houston is not capturable in a statistical system. <laughs> well, just put a bunch of Easter retweets up on your, on your site, and there you go. <laughs> but also, we talked about this on our own show. We do this new Twitch stream called the FO Radio Hour. If folks want to check that out on twitch.tv slash Outsiders. Right now, it's on every Thursday at 1 p.m. Eastern. It's going to be every weekday once we get to the regular season. Uh, we've talked about this. Houston has an expansion roster. In fact, mm-hmm. a little bit better than expansion roster. With all of those guys that they signed, there isn't room for all those guys they signed. But there are a lot of positions where Houston has a guy who's a little bit below average, but better than replacement level. <laughs> the problem is that you combine that with a bad quarterback situation and a really bad psychological situation, <laughs> but the bad psychological situation cannot be measured by statistics. Right. right. So your projection is uh, not Watson. Yeah. I, I don't expect Watson to yeah. take any snaps for them this year at yeah. all. Uh, they're uh, often a much Watson. better team. If yeah, he does. Not Watson. Tyrod, not Watson. But, yeah. But, yeah. Tyrod, not poor Tyrod. Um, so <laughs> why are the jets in the basement? Uh, we like, I think that the chapter for the Jets is actually kind of optimistic right. about what Robert Sala can bring in the long term. But the fact is that usually when teams are bringing in new schemes and new coordinators, all other things being equal, they take a step back. Normally, rookie quarterbacks have to be expected to be bad. Some of them are not bad, but you have to expect them to be bad. Uh, so when you put all that together the, the, and the lack of talent that the Jets have in a lot of places, we end up with the Jets as the worst team. Can you put together any sort of projections that factor COVID or is it just impossible? I think it's pretty much impossible. The only thing is obviously is to account for players coming back from okay. opt-outs. Or Hello, Patriots. Yeah. Well, here's the funny thing about the Patriots. It's really one player. They had eight opt-outs, but most of those players were minor. Patrick Chung retired. Marcus mm-hmm. Cannon got traded to Houston. It's yeah. one player who happens to be probably the second most important player on their defense, which is Dante Hightower. Well, maybe right. third behind if you do two, both, if you do both cornerbacks. I yeah. Casey Jackson is probably number two. In my yeah. That, but Dante Hightower is still very important. And so we account for him in our, uh, there's a variable in the defensive projections based on adding or returning talent and Dante Hightower coming back is a big reason why the Patriots have the most returning or added talent on defense of any team since 2003, when last year they had the worst leaving talent. Like they were the most negative when it came to defensive talent change. And obviously you saw what happened. Their defense fell apart. This year they're the most positive when it comes to adding talent, although I will point out fifth on that list of the last 18 years are the Denver Broncos. (laughs) Which is primarily Von Miller, I guess. <laughs> well, having Von Miller back, but also uh, Fuller and yes. Ronald Darby. Yeah. yeah. 
Um, and uh, oh god, the Bryce Callahan. I think he's ever, I don't think he's ever played a full season, but if he can, he played, be, he played most of one last year, yeah. but he was playing outside a lot, he was sort of in the yeah. wrong position, which is not really put yeah. him inside. Right. He's like the second best slot corner in the NFL. Um, so on to the teams, I'm gonna just kind of go lightning around here because I could, I could talk about this for three hours, but I don't suspect you would, you know, probably want to get out of your day. Uh, Arizona Cardinals. 2020 Cardinals started strong, positive DVOA in any of their first 10 games. They never had a positive DVOA game after that. And this really showed up on offense. We kind of knew what the defense was. Goes against your 2019 season. And I wrote a piece on the Cardinals last year based on a tweet you put out, Aaron, that in the second half of the season, Arizona's offensive DVOA went from like mid-20s to fourth or something like that. And I looked into the, their personnel. And in the first half of the season, Kingsbury was running, you know, 10 personnel, four receivers, everything you'd expect him to do. And then he got different and he got diverse and he was running different things. Larry Fitzgerald was saying, hey, this is great. And then they came into this season and he's running the same stuff he was in the first half of the season. Here's Hopkins, left yeah. ISO, doesn't move. <laughs> like, what the hell? Right. I mean, it seemed a lot more static. And their defense is still a kind of a problem, which is why I think they're last in that division. But what was your impression, kind of what, for both of you, what is your impression of Kingsbury's first two seasons, not as a coach or a culture or whatever, but as an offensive shot caller in the NFL? Getting that Chip Kelly vibe. Yeah, kind of. Got his thing, and his thing worked for a little bit, and then he's going to try his thing even, even, even more. And I, I get a lot, a lot of that on and off the field from him. And it, it, you, what you said is on the nail on the head. I mean, I didn't write that chapter, but I was watching. It's like, I want to watch the Cardinals. I want to see what he's doing. And watching Nuke Hopkins in the same position, same formation, you start calling the play. <laughs> That's a college guy thing. That is a college guy thing. It, it didn't work against, uh, you know, that school, but it'll work against, uh, you know, University of Houston when we play them or UTEP, and it'll be fine. And th- That's what I come away with. And, and, and Aaron can talk to this more. I, I don't understand the roster, roster building model at all. I, do, I understand bringing J.J. Watt in because he's J.J. Watt and jerseys and things like that. But I don't do that. And then Chandler Jones goes the other direction. So you're not building this great line, et cetera, et cetera. I don't understand. They're, they seem like they're just throwing throwing guys on the field and then Kingsbury's photocopying game plans. Their defense was actually above average last year, which is sort of surprising. And I think also goes to what I said about the variability of defense. But when you look at their defense for this year, you have, first of all, the fact that it's built around two edge rushers in their 30s who haven't been able to stay healthy, one of whom, after the book was done, we discovered wants out of town. Yes. Yes. That would be Matthew Jones. That would be Chandler Jones. The other is they have, like, no cornerbacks at all. Like their number one cornerback is Malcolm Butler, who was like the most targeted cornerback in the league last year and did not have good charting statistics. Their well, number the number two, one safety can't really cover. I mean, no offense, Buda Baker, but that's not your thing. That's not his thing. Right. But but I, I'm not going to diss on Buda Baker because no. his thing, what he does, he's very good at. He's he is, what he, it's, it's the Jamal Adams thing. He, it's like, you don't want to make, him that, don't make him that guy. Yeah. Um, their number two corner is Robert Alford, who's been injured the last two years. Their number three is a young guy named Byron Murphy, who's like, meh. Like, there's just the cornerback situation there is pretty terrible. And the offense just got stagnant. I mean, again, Vince has watched a lot more Arizona games than I have because he wrote the chapter. And he felt like the offense just got super stagnant to the point where he runs in the book 
Cliff Kingsbury's root tree and it's about <laughs> the size of the regular NFL root tree because it's so funny. And maybe it's a college, maybe it is a thing of college coaches to line their guys up and say, look, this is what we do. This is who we go to beat us. And sometimes it works because when Pete Carroll did that with the Seattle defense and he lined up his guys and said, this is the defense we run. These are the players we put out there. Go ahead and beat us. Nobody could. But uh, that's not the situation that the Arizona offense found. Well, in when you make the outlier, yeah, when you make the outlier the norm, that's how you get fired. Not uh, <laughs> saying, just saying. Uh, let's see. Let's go to the Baltimore Ravens. Mike, you wrote the Ravens chapter, and I, I know a lot of people are saying this is a real referendum on Greg Roman. Greg Roman's been doing Greg Roman things with Kaepernick and Tyrod Taylor and Lamar Jackson for ten years. He, he, he is. He is. Um, it really is a referendum on Lamar. And I don't want to get into the, you know, the stupid stuff. <laughs> but I do think, I mean, I guess I'll reduce the question to this. You're a Philly guy. You watched Vic in the mid-2000s when the Falcons were, you know, plastering every defense at the run game. And then you saw what happened when he got, when Andy Reid and Marty, Marty Morningway got a hold of him. And all right. of a sudden he became not Steve Young, but right. certainly an elevated Michael Vick. Right. Can Lamar get there? Can he be Eagles Vic? Absolutely. And I, I don't know. They don't, they don't have a similar style, in my opinion. I think no. part of it is that there was there was so it was so rudimentary to have any designed runs for Vic that he was kind of running a bootleg and taking off. Uh, so you didn't see it. And I think he was he used the whole field, I think, better than Lamar Jackson does, even in his early days. It was just more like he'd go to Planet Vic at times as well. I, you know, I, I ran a lot of stats to demonstrate the problem throwing to the sidelines is legitimate. Like there's tons of stats that back this up. He's a reluctant passer and not an effective passer when trying to throw anything more than like a quick flat pass into the sidelines there. So I think when you watch Lamar Jackson, you just want to see him more confident resetting to throw that sideline pass and delivering it. Okay. Just it's over. Get, get your feet over there, get your eyes over there. And if it's open, get it. And Roman does have to do a better job as well. There's not a lot of concepts in there that are really getting guys open on the sidelines. I don't think you can have tons and tons of concepts of that with all the other concepts. Like, if you're really building this around, yeah, we're going to have a fullback and a tight end, and we're going to be running all these meshes and things like that, it's going to be a little more rudimentary on the, si- rudimentary on the sidelines to a degree. But there's got to be something there. So when Lamar does feel like he's going to the, throw that sideline pass, somebody's been schemed to get open. I, I, don't, I don't fault the receivers much because these receivers are not, like, guys who are drafted because they run these, like, incredibly intricate comeback routes and things like that. They're speed guys. They've yeah. got to get the opportunities to get schemed open. I, I, I kind of would say the same thing of Goff over the last few years. The things that, you know, surprised you about him or made him great, he's kind of regressed. Lamar was actually in 2019, the, the MVP year, he was nails in the pocket. People don't right. talk about that. And then last year, off the, you know, off the truck. In, in the pocket, he wants to get the ball over the middle of the field. He really, really wants to do that. So he wants to get it to Andrews and things like that. And he might take a, a, an absolute deep shot up the sidelines or he might take a flap at the intermediate stuff. Doesn't look like he's comfortable doing it. When he does have to look in that direction, it's almost like his whole body is like heading in that direction there. And I, and, and that's the thing you want to improve. And one of the things I noticed is if you run the raw sideline stats, you got a lot of him scrambling to the outside and then, you know, throwing, to, throwing over the guy's heads. Then you take it out, that's when you say, yeah, in the pocket, I think between the numbers, he's doing pretty well overall. It's, it's, he's got to expand his repertoire at that point. Chicago Bears, it appears that in Justin Fields, the Bears have an above-average quarterback prospects for the first time since dinosaurs roamed the earth. 
Is this, the, is this the right fit? Because now Alan Robinson's going to the slot, and my colleague Mark Schofield with a great piece on uh, why well, that's actually a good thing uh, yeah. yesterday. Right. Um, just your impressions of because I think the defense is just fine. Uh, run game is just I think Montgomery's better than people think he is. Um, what can Matt Nagy do with Justin Fields to make this work? Let me ask you this: What do you what do you think of Robinson in the slot? I think it's fine. I think he. I mean, it would be better if he was outside, but that's yeah. what we're going to do. It seems like he's fine going into the slot, but the reason you're putting him into the slot is because you didn't develop more natural slot guys that he could do a more natural outside position. So maybe it's the curse of the Bears where they finally get a good quarterback and now they're just going to tank the receivers. And, yeah. <laughs> I don't yeah, know. It's true because, I mean, Javon Wims is their third receiver at yeah. this point now that they traded Miller. It's like we can't have nice things in the passing game. We accidentally got a good quarterback. So what do we do now? Oh, let's you know offload our receivers. That's accidentally got a good quarterback. And we're still looking, I think, a general manager who very occasionally accidentally almost makes a great decision or makes a good decision or makes the decision that's sitting right in front of him that we all would have made. And overall is not building a strong roster in any way. And we have a in Nagy, I he's over he's over one with Trubisky. He didn't get like a Foles bump out of Foles, which I think you were anticipating. I don't have any faith in this guy really being able to put something together. I would almost argue that the Foles thing was worse than the Trubisky thing. Yeah, I could see that. Like, like you were there with this guy for a year. You've got film of everything he did with these other guys. Why can't you put together a, bu- a bump that makes Foles look like himself for three games? I mean, it's bad enough to, to move up in the draft to, to get a guy who started one year at North Carolina. That's that's not you know that's, that's not coach that's a GM him. but yeah yeah, yeah. there there a, is a lot of as far as that draft goes with Trubisky uh, people there have been there's been a lot of hindsight is 2020 people saying they would have taken Mahomes higher mm-hmm. and I think the questions about Mahomes when he came out were real yeah but the idea that Trubisky went ahead of Watson yeah. is ridiculous yeah yeah. People don't remember, and I was lucky enough to watch tape with Mahomes about a month before he was drafted, and I remember we were watching the Texas game where he threw, I don't remember how many interceptions, but it could have been eight. I yeah. mean, talk about yeah. YOLO, YOLO balls, 50 yards yeah. downfield. And I said, you know, you can't do this crap in the NFL. And he like, <laughs> laughed and said, yeah, I know it's not the Big 12. And he figured <laughs> it out. But, yeah, Mahomes was – and I mean, there was the air raid prejudice – that just is, is kind of inherent in some NFL front offices and whatever, but he wasn't a disciplined no. quarterback. He was an explosive quarterback. We all knew that, but he wasn't a down to down sustaining guy. Right. Like is now for the most part. Um, right. so yeah. It, it wasn't an automatic thing. It, uh, no, it wasn't. Yeah. Cleveland Browns. This is interesting. Browns upgraded their second year in the off season, which took care of their one glaring weakness, the safety group of four box guys. Whoops. <laughs> that wasn't entirely their fault. Um, they seem primed for contention, but FO is cautiously optimistic at best. Dr. Schatz, why are you not feeling dangerous? Yeah, this is probably the one where we differ most from conventional wisdom. And that may seem odd because the Browns are such an anal- analytics focused organization that you would expect that as the analytics people, we would be really high on them. And we are on their management. Like I think the chapter talks about, we like the way that they're managed. We like the moves that they've made. The problem is they just weren't that good last year. Yes, they went 11 and five, but the underlying statistics, they were by DVOA, the second worst 11 and five team 
in the last 37 years. Hmm. And by the Pythagorean wins, which is based simply on points scored and points allowed, they were one of the 10 biggest overperformers in the, you know, since the merger. So uh, now a lot of that is wrapped up in two games early in the season where they got completely blown off the field by the Steelers and the Ravens. But even when you take those two games out of the past, when you project this year, they still end up with a below average defense. They added defensive pieces, but they also subtracted defensive pieces. There is no more Richardson. There is no more Okunjobi. There is no Vernon. It's an interesting study of are, is the secondary more important than the defensive line? Because based on the talent in and out, it looks like a wash. But if you believe that the secondary is more important than the defensive line, then they've gotten better because they added mostly secondary talent and they lost mostly defensive line talent. And of course they did add Clowney, yeah. but <laughs> the problem yeah, with correct. Clowney is he's, he, he's, he's not over the last couple of years lived up to his reputation and every stop you want to be like, okay, this is the stop where Clowney's going right. to really be Clowney again. But until we actually see that happen, I don't think that we can expect that to happen. He's going to have one game where he turns into proto Lawrence Taylor and 15 where he disappears. That's, mm-hmm. that's kind of his mm-hmm. game. And he also, he doesn't disappear. He's also, um, he's very strong against the run, mm-hmm. which is not what you want the like preeminent fact about your edge rusher to be, <laughs> but it is, does come in handy. Right. Yeah. Let's go make him a spinner again or whatever. Yeah. It's interesting. Mm-hmm. Where do you, I mean, where do you guys, Aaron and, and, and Mike, uh, the, the teams that overperform their DVOA or the DVOA kind of, tamps them back down to earth. It, when you look at the, I guess, the regression analysis for the next season for those teams, is there a historical trend that can tell you to a certain degree, okay, these teams that, you know, there's some, there's a little too much frosting and not enough cake. What happens to them historically the next season? Usually they decline. Yeah. yeah. Overall, like not all the time, but like 60 or 65% of the time, those teams decline. So there's exactly. enough correlation to go, yeah, this is kind of a problem. Yeah. And, I mean, there's two teams from last year that were in the top 10. The, the thing is, the problem with this kind of analysis is that you have to look at it in conjunction with the personnel moves. So right. there's two teams from last year that are in the top 10 of all time overperforming the Pythagorean. One is Cleveland and the other is Kansas City. But if Kansas City comes back to earth, they're still coming back to 12 and four. (laughs) And then the only team, the uh, Atlanta is the number three team of all time in underperforming Pythagorean. Mm -hmm. But then they went and traded Julio Jones. So it's, it's hard to be like, Oh, Atlanta's going to the playoffs this year after some of the personnel changes that were made, but they're going to be better than last year. So yeah, go ahead. Yeah. There are indicators like third down, DVOA and things like that, they're kind of leading indicators too, right? Like it's not yes. just regression, but it's like, oh, well, why did this team overperform, underperform? You look at things like third down, which can have an incredible swing on importance. And some teams, oh, they were lights out in that. That's probably not going to keep up. Or they were incredibly bad in that. That might have been a luck factor. Yeah, third down and red zone are inordinately important, but vary from year to year much more than your performance over the most of the field and particularly on first and second down. So correspondingly, the teams like Atlanta through your history as far back as it goes at this point, is there kind of that same bounce up? Yes. 60 to 65% sort of thing? Yes. 
But given the personnel moves in Atlanta, I would expect that bounce up to be from four and 12 to like six and 10, not from four and 12 to nine and seven. Well, sorry, to six and 11, not to 10 and seven. Okay, now the ankle biting portion of our program. Uh, Dan Campbell's certainly fun. We're talking about the Lions, of course. Defense seen automatic upgrade due to the absence of Matt Patricia and his don't play man if you can't play man thing. I want to get both of your opinions on this. Do the Lions have anything more than a placeholder in Jared Goff? Because he's regressed massively, like enormously over the last few seasons, even with the things that helped most quarterbacks. It helped him, motion, play action, you know, the jet stuff the Rams did. And I know they had some personnel issues, especially on the offensive line, but it seemed like Goff not only hit his ceiling at some point, but suffered several concussions, banging his head against the ceiling, and it's kind of showing up on the field. Where are you guys with Goff in your projections and just from what you've observed? What, what does Ben Muth call uh, Jared Goff, Aaron? Calls him the world's greatest jugs machine. I love that. <laughs> point, point him at a receiver and tell him to throw there, and the throw will be awesome. <laughs> right. And, and I mean, I, I see a, a placeholder with a bad receiving core, which is a bad one-two punch. Yeah, Amon Ra St. Brown might be their best guy. Yeah, Amon Ra and 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 Quentin Cephas or whatever the young man's name is. Yeah. Again, you know, so he's he's going to be throwing. It's going to be like a three tight end formation, and he's going to be throwing the ball to tight ends and everything. So it's a it's a bad one-two punch there. And I say this, and yet Aaron and I didn't talk to you about this before. We we mentioned in our, on our Twitch show they have a really high projection from us and the over under in Vegas seems to have dropped from 5.5 to 4.5 for the Detroit Lions. Yeah. Th- this is the team with the biggest difference between our mean projection and their Vegas over under. Yes. Because our mean projection is still like 27th in the league, <laughs> mm-hmm. but it's like 7.2 or something. Uh, our projections tend to be closer to 500 than Vegas lines do. Um, it's tough because if you look statistically, it's hard to see the difference between Stafford as golf as being that big mm. other than last year. If you right. consider the last two or three years, the difference between golf and Stafford is very small. Um, but the subjective it's, it's t- the stuff that a system like ours is not going to pick up the subjective stuff. The stuff you get from watching film suggests there's a much larger difference between. Oh, yeah. When you watch a tape, it's thermonuclear. It's like. But <laughs> when you look at the statistics, that's why we end up with the Rams below Vegas and Detroit ahead of Vegas. And I don't know why there seems to be something every year. We seem to be higher on Detroit than Vegas is. And uh, we are wrong. So uh, if you don't want to bet our Vegas over on Detroit, I do not begrudge you. <laughs> right. um, but that being said, uh, this is not praise for Dan Campbell, but if we believe that Matt Patricia was holding things back as much as people seem to believe, wouldn't Dan Campbell not hold them back? Like maybe not boost them up, but like if Patricia was holding Stafford back, then, I mean, Goff is not in a McVeigh situation, but he's not in a the situation. Uh, I mean, this is enough, this is more subjective psychology stuff, but when you talk to players in Detroit, like they all hated him. like the feelings about patricia are really negative and i feel bad saying that because i've met him and he seems like a nice guy i met him too he seems like a very nice guy and a very smart guy but i've talked to quandary Diggs about his experience there oh boy he may have he may have (laughs) eric mangini disease 
which is that I've heard tons of bad things about what Mangini was like as a head coach. And when you meet him in person, now Mm -hmm. that he's not a head coach anymore, he's a really great guy and actually kind of humble. And it's really hard to square that with the descriptions you've heard of things that happened in the locker room when he was a head coach. And maybe Patricia's got the same thing going on. But if you believe that he dragged Detroit down, you kind of have to believe that that team is a little bit better than you think, which leads you to believe that maybe they're not a four and 13 team. Maybe they're a seven and 10 team. Yeah. Again, we're not talking about likely playoff uh, contention. And and I now do no longer have to say the, in the event that Aaron Rodgers doesn't come back, I don't have to say that phrase anymore, but even in the event that Aaron Rodgers had not come back, the favorite in that division would have been Minnesota and then Detroit would have been way beyond. Nice segue. It's the Packers. Is the secondary the only thing keeping this team from winning a Super Bowl before they lose both Aaron Rodgers and Devontae Adams to revert back to the Dan Devine 1970s Packers for a while? The secondary, the fact that, you know, I don't know the exact level of faith in the non-Devontae targets. I mean, we can talk about Tanya and all these other guys. Um, But I would say I would put it in order of the secondary and then, yeah, the tertiary targets in the offense and then the psychology of this relationship right now. And also because edge rusher. Edge rusher, yeah. Preston Smith yeah, that was disappeared weird. last year. And Rashawn <laughs> Gary's got promise. But right now it's Darius Smith on one side as Let's Hope on the other side. Well, my, I, Mike Pettin had Preston Smith covering receivers. Yeah, that was bad. So, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I think I, I would say edge rusher's on the list. But that's another team almost like uh, Mike Nolan at this point where that system had to, had to go. And we're not too sure about the new guy. The thing about Adams is yeah, fascinating. yeah. I was looking at SIS data, and then you go and look at the tape, and it, it backs it up. He had like 14 touchdowns uh, against single high, and he was, I wouldn't say erased against two high, but then it was MVS and Tanya. So it's like yeah. how you run your defense decides whether Devontae Adams is going to get those, you know, eat the big bites of lunch. I'll be curious to see if the smarter defensive coordinators, and of course we all know they're not all the smarter defensive coordinators, but the smarter guys kind of look at that and go, Hey, if we, you know, one bracket one, let's go. Let's, let's see what happens there. At this point, if if Randall Cobb shows up there, the smarter defensive coordinators are going to take him out of the game to see if Aaron Rodgers gets mad about it and has a huff. Well, true. (laughs) I I hate to say it, but I'm at this level with what's going on there, where it's like, where LaFleur's going to be like, so did your buddies get enough touches and targets there, Aaron? And I know this is that's not uh, analytics or anything like that, but we're we're through the looking glass with what's happening right now. If they Uh, trade for Cobb, then that's like, Cobb has been declining the last couple of years. Sure. I don't think he's an addition to their receiver core. If they're yeah. trading for Cobb just to make Aaron Rodgers happy, you scratch mm-hmm. your head. Yep. I think Tom Brady opened up a really interesting bag of stuff for superstar quarterbacks. The Green Bay chapter kind of gets into that. Yeah. Yeah, but you want to do it. I mean, Tom Brady was the goat of goats. He had to do it a certain way. He yeah. had to let his contract expire. You can't, you can't have your cake and eat it and do this and that. Like I, I want a five-year contract extension and I want to trade whenever I get into a, into a, into a hissy fit. That's, that's not, that's not how it works. And that, and we're seeing an example of that right now. It's amazing how nobody here in new England holds it against Brady. Right. Right. Because he just did it very, you know, he did it very quietly. He let his contract expire. He didn't trash the team on his way out. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, six Super Bowls, he'd been taking lowball deals for years to help it. I mean, yeah, there really yep. isn't anything to go on. He never said any. There, he built up so much equity. I mean, if you right. pull it against him, you're just kind of a jerk. 
With right. Rogers, yeah, it's more complicated. Yes, but I don't right. know if you know anything about New England, but I'm surrounded by jerks. Oh yeah, yeah, their their yeah. their media up there is a little wacky, so they could there could be there could be jerks. Yeah, be jerks. yeah. Back to the first part of our uh, podcast there. <laughs> Indianapolis Colts, Mike, Philly guy, Muffaletta, Muffaletta boy, Carson Wentz. What? Mm-hmm. How is it possible? Is it just over? Because I I mean I know they had a, a you know dumpster fire running, but mechanically. Wolf. The orchid. The orchid needs exact sunlight, exact amount of water, the amount of pH. You need to play music for the orchid, for the orchid to grow and blossom. Carson Wentz is the orchid. In Philly, you have you must be the dandelion who can grow in the cracks. I, I know Aaron's I know Aaron's got like some projection and stuff here to go, but I don't think, and I've been hinting around this on the Twitch stream, I don't think people realize where it's at with Carson Wentz and his sort of, I just, we talk about Rogers and we're talking about personalities and all where Carson Wentz is in terms of his ability to overcome what he perceives as adversity and everything we saw in the last two or three years suggests that you better get the hot house exactly right in Indianapolis. Statistically with Wentz, it's, there's so little to go on because there's so few comparable declines that we just have yeah, to kind gonna, of yeah. shrug our shoulders and go, okay, there'll probably be some bounce back. So our mm-hmm. projections are for something that's between last year and the year before. Um, there's never been anybody who went from average to hideous in the way that Wentz did. Like similar declines in history were guys who went from fabulous to average, but there's never been anybody who quite went from average to just horrendous. So it's 20, really yeah. hard to go by any history to figure out where Wentz is going this year. Uh, who are some of the names and is 2015 Peyton Manning on that list? Um, well, I don't think Peyton Manning from 2015 is comparable because the age is so different. Oh, no, I'm not saying it's the same problem. I'm just saying that the same kind of de- like a DVOA drop. Uh, the sim- most similar is Jake Cutler when he went from Denver to Chicago. Oh, okay. Hmm. But the right. problem there is you're also talking about a guy who switched teams, whereas Wentz was on the same team and just and he and he bottomed out way worse than Cutler did. Right. Can you guys please do an article where you have nicknames for your quarterback, Jugs Machine. That's a walkthrough right there. Yeah. <laughs> I want to play guest editor for two seconds. Okay, let's uh, let's do a little more lightning round. And thanks again for doing this, guys. Uh, Kansas City Chiefs. This is really interesting. They trade for Orlando Brown. What are the Ravens? Power counter trap. They select Creed Humphrey for the center. Oklahoma, power counter trap. Ramondi Stevenson blowing through stuff. I think the Chiefs aren't just rebuilding their offensive line. They may be moving to more of a gap power counter trap idea, kick your ass thing, after running mostly zone in the Mahomes era. If they do that, you think this works for Mahomes, and more importantly, Mahomes' running backs? I don't know, and I'll, I'll say this. I remember at the end of the Eagles era, Leighton McNabb era, Andy Reid wanted to sort of rebuild the offensive line about around more power concepts and more rushing concepts. And it lasted about halfway through the first game. And yeah. then, then they were back, then they were back to, to zone and then play action bomb, play action bomb and all the things he was running back then. So, you know, I, I think the talent is undeniable. I think that's good. I, I don't, I don't know what a scheme change like that would do for Mahomes, but I don't think that Andy Reid has it in his DNA to make that much of a change. He might mess around with it. He might tinker with it. He might add it as a wrinkle. But at the end of the day, he's going to go back to what he likes to do. 
Uh, question about the Chargers. We all, Brandon Staley's the NFL and this new big thing, and justifiably so. But when you go from, I don't know if you have any history on this, guys, but when you go from predominantly one high, which they have a Gus mm-hmm. Bradley, to predominantly two high, cover four, cover six, Rams played that more and better than anyone else. What does history tell us from going from predominant one high? And I'm not talking 60%. I'm talking like 75, 75. <laughs> this is big. It's a right. big shift. Let's be positive and assume a healthy Derwin James. The, the Chargers are the personnel. I, I think they pretty much have the personnel to do this, but it's a big shift. I don't know that we should automatically assume insert Brandon Staley and we're number one in everything. I think statistically, statistically, I've, we've never done a research study. We'd have to get all the coverage percentages from SIS for the last five or six years or however long they've charted it and then do some study. It's an interesting question. Right. There probably would only be five or six years of data to go on. Um, I think, the I, think they're, they, I think their zone man, like their individual coverages goes back to like 2016. Right. The, um, I think you're right about Staley, which is here's the problem. We want to believe that certain coordinators and coaches on one side of the ball have a massive effect because of the quality of their coaching. Mm-hmm. The problem is, like on the defensive side of the ball, there have never been coaches who had enough of a sample size with different teams that you could say, this is the coach and not the team. The only guy who really has that sample size is Wade Phillips. Mm-hmm. So there's, there's nothing that says that what happened with the Rams last year was Staley and not the talent or random chance. You'd have to see Staley do it over and over again to really believe. So I think people are counting on Staley bringing more of an improvement to the Chargers defense than I think we can legitimately count on. On the Vikings, and I I asked you about this pre-podcast, like the correlation of your stats to performance, you know, wins for teams, performance for individuals. Uh, in the Vikings chapter, you guys point out the performance in various unsticky stats. You mentioned special teams DVOA, average starting field position differential, adjusted games lost, and schedule strength DVOA. What does this say about Minnesota's potential in 2021? And just maybe more than that, go into unsticky stats. Like what doesn't transfer? Even though it's, it's important to note, but maybe it doesn't really – I don't want to well, say like it we, mean anything, but it kind of doesn't mean as much. I said earlier, third, third down does not correlate as well from year to year. Red zone does not correlate from year to year. Scott Spratt really goes into this in the Minnesota chapter. Special teams correlates less than offense or defense. Mm-hmm. Uh, adjusted games lost, which is our injury metric. There is some correlation from year to year, but usually teams that are on the extreme will come back to the pack. Uh, schedule strength does not correlate well from year to year. Although in this case, I will say Minnesota had a very hard schedule last year. They project to have a hard schedule. Again, the whole NFC North projects to have a hard schedule. Uh, but a lot of these stats, like the difference between first and second down performance and third down performance suggests that Minnesota will rebound this year and be a better team. And essentially while they were competing for the playoffs last year by going, what did they finish like seven and nine? So they were sort of in it till the end, kinda like they were really rebuilding. Like it was really a rebuilding year. And now we're going to see the result of that. And Minnesota is probably when, when, when you, there are teams that we have better than Vegas, there are the teams at the bottom where our stats are just more clustered around eight and eight. So the teams at the bottom, we have better than Vegas. And then there are the teams that we honestly have better than Vegas, like in the middle, but we have them better. And Minnesota is one of those teams. 
Uh, Michael asks you about the Eagles. Retool or rebuild? <laughs> what should it be? Uh, it should be, they call it a transition here. It should be a rebuild. It's clearly a retool. There was a lot of discussion of this about Twitter on why are we bringing in Steve Nelson? Why are we adding pieces at this point? And, uh, you know, you can, you can make a case for me as we're trying to get Jalen Hurts ready here to say, let's keep this offensive line intact. Keep, let's bring Barrett Brooks back. Let's keep Kelsey for another year. Because you can obviously see the logic of saying, let's make sure we know what we have and we're not going to break our, 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 our quarterback. Uh, I have no idea what this logic is on defense at this point. This is a team that I think should have been, I don't use the word tank, you know, but should have been doing a stronger rebuild and more cap uh, repair this year than they did. And they should definitely uh, Ertz, who's like sort of disgruntled. They should have found a way to move him. Fletcher Cox is, I think on the downside of his career, as good as he is, he still has value. They should have been making efforts to move some of these guys as the heroes of 2017, the guys who are still here from Andy Reid era, which are a couple of them. They should have moved on from them. I think our projection has them around a seven win team. Um, and, and you can see that, but I don't know what, it, it doesn't matter what their record is. What matters is have they found a quarterback or not? So anything that they're doing that isn't helping them find a quarterback and, and install Sirianni's system isn't valuable. Everything else about that is right now forestalling the situation that they're start, still going to be trying to do cap relief in 2022 because they had to get out from under the Orchids contract. And, you know, anytime that you put more money in that they can't bank, that they can't uh, get, get out from contract contracts quickly they're slowing down the transition to being something besides a rebuilding team Aaron I'll ask you about your beloved Patriots uh we talked about the net AV replacement defense uh they're they had like 32 tight end snaps last year just yeah it's yeah. they're going to be very different this year like Buffalo was second with 240 something it was so much different so Hunter Henry, Johnny Smith, we know what, you know, the creativity. Nelson Aguilar and Tyree Kill had similar deep numbers last year. They're not similar guys. Uh, I, know. I, would, I, know. I was going to say, we look at sa- uh, one-year samples and we go, yeah. huh. Right. Hmm. Um, how do you uh, – what are your projections for their offense? And sidebar question – with the guy they took in the first round, can you win in the NFL with a quarterback who has like no section of action ability? I asked June Jones this last week on the podcast and he said, yeah, not only can you because he moves well in the pocket, but June Jones had Mac Jones, maybe it was a name as his number one quarterback in this draft. Hmm. Wow. Which I think, for, uh, you know, the offenses he ran that you'd think would be the least guy you'd expect, but yeah. I think that as far as the Patriots for this year, I expect a big defensive bounce back to carry that team. We have them with the like 20th or 21st offensive projection. Uh, So a little bit better than last year because the talent that was added at receiver and tight end, but mostly driven by defense and the fact that they have the easiest projected schedule. Um, As far as Mac Jones, I don't pretend to be a great scout of quarterbacks. Uh, What I know is that the odds that he's going to be successful are not that much worse than the odds of like Mm. Justin field. Like we don't, we have to remember that we don't know what we think we know. Right. And if these guys were first round talents, you wanted to get one of them. I would have rather had Justin Fields. I think he has better odds of turning out, but there is a good chance of Mac Jones turning into a good quarterback and you had to take the shot. I don't know who plays. Like, I think I was just going to add, I don't know how long. Yeah. 
are your projections Cam or Jones? And do you give Cam an uptick because he'll actually have an off season and he, you know, hopefully won't get COVID in? I mean, do you? Right. Do you there is Cam, Cam Newton is the we projected with Cam Newton at quarterback, and again, this is one where COVID leads to some subjective stuff that we don't know because we don't know about the effect of having a full off season. And we don't know about the effect of COVID on Cam because remember how much better he looked in the first three weeks of last season before he right. got COVID. Right. Yeah. One thing I look at with that with that roster there, and you talk about Aguilar, they bring in Kendrick Warren, you bring in the two tight ends. It looks like they want to run a ton of tight formations. They really want to have everybody boxed in there and have like a million run gaps and run fits and things like that. And I don't know what that means. When I look at that, I say they're planning to have either have Cam Newton out there so they can put some option things in there and run traps and stuff like that. Or it's like we're going to protect the hell out of the rookie. So I'm not sure, but I look at that and it's like, oh, you're going to have two tight ends, and then you have Kendrick Ward next to them, almost like a third tight end. And you have Aguilar who's a slot guy, and you just want you want everybody constricted inside the numbers in your offense. Well, it's, it's interesting. Like, yeah, go ahead. it looks like a really high floor, low fee, high floor, low ceiling team to me. Right. Yeah. Like with the defense likely to get a lot better. Again, defense is more variable than offense, but likely to get a lot better with all the talent returning slash added. I feel like they're really in line for a wild card spot and not much more than that. They're not Buffalo. My theory when they signed Cam Newton was Bill Belichick has never had a quarterback who could run in New England because obviously you have the greatest quarterback of all time. You don't worry about it, except for that, the deflate gate where they had Jacoby Brissett for, and they just ran read option, killed the yeah. Texans 27. Yeah, yeah. So I'm thinking, you know, Belichick goes back to like having to defend Randall Cunningham twice a year, you know, dealing with Michael <laughs> all the way through RG three and Russell Wilson and all the things he said about Russell Wilson before Super Bowl 49. Right. He's got to have like five different, four inch folders on all the option stuff he would want to do if he ever could. And right. watch the run game lot. The QB run game last year was like, I don't what's, oh God. what's less flavorful than vanilla. So I kind of <laughs> wonder if with an off season, it gets a little more in the, the reduced splits though, the tight formations. Yeah. Um, I remember talking to Matt Bowen about this when I was doing another three part thing on match coverage. And he would, Matt was talking about why McVeigh does it. And it allows you to use 12 personnel, like 11 personnel, because when your reduced splits are there, you've got all this area you can sort of spread out. So right. Belichick kind of goes with the, you know, I don't want to say Belichick going with the McVay plan, because obviously Belichick's done a bit more, but that kind of thing, that could be really interesting. I don't know if that would help Matt Jones, but I think it would make Cam Newton, his situation really interesting play action and then guys are going into the flats where there's all the space tight ends are going into the flats going up wheel routes up the sidelines there's a lot of things you can do with that in addition to the fact that you just create these extra run gaps yep. when you've got two tight ends and you say oh and we got a receiver who can block so there's another run run fit that you have to worry about if you're going to try to pound the ball yeah okay i'm keeping you guys over i'm going to do a few quick more questions here uh 49ers obviously did they leave the league in agl they had to right i believe that they did yeah good god <laughs> Everybody got nuked. Uh, what should their what do adjusted games lost bounce backs tell us? Because I, I think the Eagles were one team. It was either last year or the year before where it didn't happen. They just kept getting hurt. Yeah, but it doesn't happen all the time. Yeah, historically, yeah, there's actually some correlation from year to year. The 49ers have been high in injuries for like six years now, mm-hmm. but it's unlikely they're going to be as high as they were last year, and it's unlikely that players of that importance. Like it was their most important players who got hurt, right. uh, Bosa and Kittle and the quarterback. And f- first of all, if the quarterback gets hurt this year, they've got two of them. 
Second right. of all, it's un, you know it's more likely that it's going to be more backup type players than that it's going to be their best pass rusher and their best <laughs> offensive player. Yeah. Um, are your projections for them Jimmy G or Trey Lance? How does that work? It's based on Jimmy G because the fact is that rookies will always project worse than veterans in almost every case. Right. So we base it on the veteran with the idea that if a team's going to go with the rookie over the veteran, they must know or believe that the rookie is going to perform as well. So we base our projections. It's based on Newton. It's based on Andy Dalton. It's based on Garoppolo because our, our projections for rookies are, tend to be bad because most rookie quarterbacks tend to be bad. Andy Dalton. I roll. Uh, oh, the North Dakota State offense, was, I mean, they ran wide throwback, wide cross all the time. They had a fullback in doing stuff. I mean, it's, it's, it was pretty shanahan which is kind of interesting. Uh, I'm going to go out with, uh, and of course, we'll hold you to this all year, uh, Super Bowl predictions for both of you. Who goes, who wins? You go first, Aaron. Well, the numbers have Tampa Bay and Baltimore as the two best teams, but I have been going with my gut, and I'm going with Kansas City over – the Dallas Cowboys. There you go. I'm out. Flag. Okay. Dallas. Dallas. I love their offense, and I think yeah. their defense can rebound to be a little bit above average. And to be honest, I'm just kind of tired of picking chalk every year uh -huh. when some team comes out of nowhere and makes the Super Bowl, and I've decided this year I'm making my out-of-nowhere pick. So Kansas City over Dallas. Well, they do a lot. I love Trevon Diggs. I think he's going to be special. Um, and Quinn is a brilliant guy. So, and no one was who boy. So, okay. See that. Mike, what about you? I'm going to go with Chiefs over, over the Buccaneers. You know, I'm, I'm still trying to figure out if the, uh, if the Packers riders hate sex is going to be good enough to just blow everybody away this year. I don't think that's the case. Um, and I'm not the Cowboys. I think I agree with Aaron. I think they're going to have a heck of a season. They're going to coast through the division. They'll lose in the playoffs. They'll do something stupid in the playoffs. So, from what of a better team to, to pick in the NFC, I'm just going to I'm going to put the Chiefs over the Bucks. Myself, I'm going with the Fubalo Bills over the Green Bay Packers. I think. Oh, that's one question I wanted to ask you the, the about Josh Allen. The year three bump is quite historic. So you bring in the plexiglass principle, which I'll leave to you to explain. Where do you have Allen sitting this year? Because I may have to change my prediction now. Yeah, the plexiglass principle is generally used for teams, but I think it works for players too, which is if you have a huge improvement, you usually have a decline the next year. So we have Allen falling back to the pack a little bit, but maintaining most of the growth from last year. We expect, we expect that at this point, Allen's going to be a pretty good quarterback going forward. Okay, I'm going to stick with it. Bills and over the Packers. The defense will be better for the yeah. same reason that the Buffalo Bills offense is likely to be a little worse this year. The defense is likely to be a little bit better. So, I mean, if you go with Buffalo and Packers as your top two Super Bowl teams, that's a pretty good pick. I mean, those are two of our top six or seven teams. We have the Packers a little lower in wins because they have a hard schedule, but they're top five DVOA projection. Yeah. And then off Aaron Rodgers goes to wherever. We'll guys thanks so much for doing this always a pleasure to chat uh you know as, as always thank you for everything and uh, we'll, we'll hopefully talk soon oh yeah football outsiders almanac everyone hold it up as seen on tv so you can get this by going to amazon.com to get the print copy or by going to footballoutsiders.com and becoming an fo plus subscriber that gets you all of our uh, advanced content during the season like picks like fantasy projections, like a whole bunch of new fantasy tools we're going to be introducing, 
and you also get the almanac as part of that, including our new online articles. You can read the 32 team essays much easier as online articles this year. The PDF has everything, but you, you can also read the online articles for all the teams really easy. Nice. Mike is doing the prices right thing. I like that. Glamorous. Guys, thanks so much. Uh, we'll hope maybe we'll do it again in season uh, if we can get you back. But uh, thanks for this. Always appreciated. Always thanks for having us on. And it's really great to talk to you. And next time we'll we'll snag Andy and get Froyo. There you go. <laughs> we'll see you again, man. Yeah. Take care now.